Investors Chronicle. Companies and Market Show on the pod today. Compass is our result of the week. Mark Robinson will be talking rubbish, or rather talking us through his feature on waste management. And the IC Funds editor, Dave Baxter, joins the pod for the first time. Companies and Market Show, welcome back, listener. It is Thursday the 12th of uh, May uh, now, as we record. And uh, delighted to welcome a first-timer to the podcast, Dave Baxter. Hi, Dave. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. Listeners will be familiar. Done a few IC interviews as well, haven't you? So a veteran of the microphone. (laughs) Hope so. (laughs) Great to have you. Great to have you with us. We've also got Mark Robinson back this week. Hi, Mark. Hi, John. You okay? Good, thank you. And Julian Hoffman as well. Hi, Julian. Hello there, John. Okay. Hiya, hiya. And uh, of course, we've got Dan Jones, who's going to be taking us through our discussion topics uh, a little later. Uh, but before we get on to that, a quick news roundup from uh, from the week that's been. Uh, rising rates and recession fears are continuing to impact world markets. In particular, there's been a big sell-off in US tech. The Nasdaq, for instance, down 28% year to date. Uh, even Apple is not immune and is now no longer the world's most valuable company after shares fell 5% yesterday. Aramco, the Saudi Arabian oil company, has taken top spot. A couple of potential mergers to report. Capital and Counties in Shaftesbury, two of the West End's biggest landlords, are in talks, while real estate investment trusts LXI and Secure Income have reached an agreement, forming a $3.9 billion property portfolio. A few other selected company lines from the week. Uh, the Ukrainian-based iron ore miner Forexpo has defied expectations in announcing a final 2021 dividend. Uh, the miner has managed to keep producing and exporting to Europe despite the ongoing warfare. Revenue at ITV has shown signs of growth in the first quarter of 2022, but things are expected to get bumpier as the year progresses. Total streaming hours, a key performance indicator, fell by 7%. Meanwhile, BT has spun off BT Sport into a joint venture with Warner Bros Discovery in a move which will bring together BT Sport and Eurosport. This allows BT to push on with investment in its fibre optic network, OpenReach and its 5G service. Hargreaves Lansdowne shares tumbled 7% when markets opened on Thursday morning. It came as the investment platform reported assets under management fell to £132.3 billion at the end of April. That's down from £141.2 billion at the end of last year. And salmonella found in Cranswick's Hull facility saw shares in the food producer fall by 5%. Uh, all these company updates and more are available in more detail on the Investors Chronicle website. Just seek out the Today's Markets articles in our company's news section. And a reminder to subscribe to our trader newsletter to get the latest news straight into your inbox every weekday. Uh, Link in the podcast description to that. Uh, Finally from me, Tesco chair John Allen has joined the chorus of calls for a windfall tax on energy companies. In comments made to the BBC, Allen said there was an overwhelming case uh, to help mitigate the cost of living crisis for those most in need. All from me, over to Dan to kick us off with our result of the week. Hi, John. Yeah, Uh, we're going to start in what's been obviously quite a difficult week for many investors. We're going to start with a bit of good news. Um, Compass, Compass Group is our result of the week, a company that had a pretty tough pandemic for a number of reasons. There was the rights issue a couple of years ago, 
uh, two years this month, in fact. And, you know, some negative publicity as well when one of its um, subsidiaries was a... Um, was collared for producing some rather underwhelming uh, food boxes for children, I think, during the pandemic as well. But, you know, time moves on. And uh, this week we've seen um, uh, guidance raised. We've seen a buyback. Uh, the dividend was already restored at the end of last year. And obviously investors reacted pretty well to that. Uh, Mark, you uh, covered the results for us, for the IC. Is it all good news? What, what's your sort of take on, on uh, Compass's fortunes? It's never all good news, Dan, as, as you know. In terms of um, the latest interim figures, as you say, the um, market responded well. I, I think they're up about 10% in early trading before trading up, trading off a little bit later in the day. And in, in addition to the um, bringing back the, the interim dividend, I think they'd paid a full year one, but in addition to, to bringing that back, they announced a, a £500 million buyback, which is to be completed or at least uh, initiated by the the end of the year. Uh, there was there was various metrics that that uh, management was keen to to highlight. One of them was the the highest ever re- retention rate, which is great, but it needs to be uh, seen in a wider context there as well. Because I mean, obviously they're coming from a much lower base, and you could even say that about the uh, the new business trend, which was up to four point four percent against um, a three percent historical rate. But again, I think that is largely attributable to the fact that they're in recovery mode at the moment. But it'd be churlish just to dismiss it out of hand. Sure. You you say on just picking up on that the the new business rate before we go into some other details. You know, I mean, Compass as you expect were quite bullish. They were saying you know a lot of this revenue growth is coming from that increased volume rather than you know just higher prices on the back of the inflationary pressures we all know about. It seems to me as well, you know, they're, they're obviously also making the case very much for, you know, this outsourcing, uh, companies outsourcing, catering to them, you know, the, the likelihood of that increasing further is growing, whether it be due to, you know, everyone having supply chain issues, you know, therefore using someone like Compass with their resources and their scale would make sense, or whether it be companies who now actually, you know, want a bit more of an ad hoc service, you know, they've got employees in the office on different days and they might not have the full catering uh, facilities they once had. How do you sort of feel about that? Well, certainly all those um, possibilities um, are genuine. It's conceivable that the, the business model uh, will evolve in line with uh, issues like hybrid working, for instance. But uh, I think a business, given its scale, is always in a, a constant state of uh, reform, really. And so I, th- I think, you know, there's no doubt, I don't think it's just hype. It's will only play out over time. I mean, you look at the scale of the operations as well. They operate in over 40, 40 countries around the world and uh, imp- employ over half a million people. I, I think the the salient point or one of the salient points to come out of it as well, given the number of people that they employ, will be the impact of uh, inflationary pressures going forward, particularly wage inflation. But, you know, as, as you said before, the management were were proactive in, in showing up the cash position after the uh, the lockdown provisions were put in place by government, they raised about two billion pounds, and then uh, also increased their their credit facilities as well. So by the heart of the pandemic, they had liquidity position of around about five billion pounds, which allowed them to to get through. I mean, there can't there can't have been too many other sectors who've had who had the rug pulled out from under them quite as quickly 
as a hospitality uh, stroke food service. Sure. I guess, I guess another thing that caught my eye, the free cash flow, even though they'd had, you know, marked increase revenues and profits, they remained flat at around um, £360 million. Pounds. But that was down to the fact that, um, you know, you had a, a working capital outflow, which was um, predict- predictable given their costs associated with bringing uh, capacity back online. CapEx was up as well, and they and the bosses flagged that that's going to go up through the second half too, and naturally they're paying more taxes too. Uh, I, I think, as I mentioned before, you know, I don't think the company is necessarily out of the woods. It's a very positive, a very positive turnaround for them as well. But we really don't know what impact rising soft commodity prices is going to have on earnings. And, you know, because it's it's a volume game with them. It's a volume game. Margins aren't uh, particularly high compared to other uh, sectors. And I don't think we'll really under appreciate how bad the current uh, food crisis is until next year when you'll get um, major dirt in terms of uh, cereal production and also edible oils too. We'll have to wait really to next year to just see the impact on the business there in, in addition to wage inflation. Yeah, there's definitely yeah, more, more cost pressures coming through. Using, I suppose, the anecdotal evidence of our own staff canteen, the, the, you know, some of those food costs, now they've reintroduced them, they've been going up, I think, about 50% uh, this year, which, you know, it's pretty high, but then they haven't, they've held them down for a few years and, you know, it's to be expected, I suppose. And I'm something of a captive uh, customer myself because I've continued to eat there. So maybe that's a good sign for, for Compass. Um, Julian, what, what's your take on the uh, the company? Do you, you agree with Mark, you know, slightly equivocal? Or... Yeah, I, I'm kind of slightly more sceptical about the future recovery of the company. I, I mean, the point that quite a few analysts have drawn out is that uh, we won't actually know what the true comparatives are until next year. So there's a sort of a rebound effect that's come through from the end of the pandemic. And uh, that might uh, be feeding through into these improved like for night numbers. So there is that thing to watch out for that, that it might take 12 months actually to get a, to, to get a like a proper um, like for like annual comparison. Uh, the other thing was I noticed that the, the, uh, the CFO, uh, the uh, CEO noted that uh, They'd, uh, they'd improve their profitability by changing some of their menus, one of which was to swap uh, trout for salmon, or salmon for trout, rather. Um, if only things in business were that easy. I think that's... Uh... <laughs> so it is a, it's an interesting story, and I think it's a consistently good performer, Compass. You can't really, uh, you can't really take that away from them. But you do wonder whether there isn't a, a case that... Uh, they're they're riding a um, a bit of a tide at the moment, and how long that recovery continues is is something of a, a question mark. I think it wasn't an even recovery across the group as well. Obviously, we've uh, we we pointed to the impact of hybrid working and changing uh, employment patterns. It was it was perhaps significant that uh, Tesco were trialling um, some flexible office space within their their unused store space this week which is quite an interesting development. Uh, but in, in terms of Compass, you know, they, they saw um, good volume growth over in the United States, uh, particularly within the, the division that uh, served the sporting market over there and, and education as well, because obviously uh, kids are returning to campus now. So, so, you know, 
seven out of ten for the interim results. I think you know the the market uh, the market was very pleased by and large, and obviously the uh, the interim dividend and buyback uh, helps to support the share price. But I, I would just warn on on the the impacts of inflation going forward. I also noticed it's the first set of results where they haven't mined about Brexit. Uh, yes, causing them in, an impossibility of of recruiting staff. It's, it's usually been a, sort of the same thing for the last five, five or six years. But uh, actually, maybe they've maybe they've now got enough staff, so it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, I, I, one one thing I thought was quite interesting, more more from a, a general economic point of view rather than Becomes' fortunes, was their comments about the office. You know, they return to the office for their own business. They they seem to think you know the business and industry segment can reach. 100% of pre-COVID levels, even without a full return to the office because of things like, well, companies providing more free food to their staff in an attempt to get them back, for example, which, you know, is perhaps slightly counterintuitive. But it was also interesting, they they were talking about actually that the tight labour markets are making that return to the office a bit harder. The implication being, you know, workers have a bit more leverage at the moment to say, no, I'd like to work from home for a bit longer, if that's all right. Thank you. Well, that, that could change rather rapidly as well if we, you know, interest rates keep on rising companies will be tightening budgets and uh, it'd be interesting to see the, the way it plays out. Indeed, plenty of uh, uh, things still to be decided on that front. Uh, one other thing Compass mentioned, uh, one way they are attempting to change their business a little bit is to reduce the amount of waste they produce from all their services. And that leads us neatly on to the cover story this week, uh, also written by Mark, which is on the topic of, uh, of waste management, talking rubbish, all those kind of jokes will... Uh, uh, <laughs> have been applied liberally around the office this week. But uh, Mark, why don't you sort of take us through some of the, the topics you, you discussed there? Because this is obviously not an area that gets people excited, but it's potentially one where there are some opportunities coming down the line. Yeah, I, I, I guess if I could sum it up, the theme in one theme is that I think it's where regulatory edicts grind up against the reality. And here's an industry, for instance, that's in thrall to uh, national and supranational uh, regulators, and yet it finds itself also faced with uh, dynamic change in emerging market economies as well. So, uh, just some of the the, the points that I, I was making, the the industry itself, just prior to the uh, the pandemic, is worth around about the, uh, a trillion trillion dollars, and the growth rates. Uh, you obviously get variations in this, but it, it seemed the average growth growth rate that I was looking at seemed to be around about 6% per annum through to 2030. Some of that is down to increased regulations, increased strictures uh, on existing legislation, but it's also down to the fact that uh, middle classes are still expanding in in emerging and and frontier markets as well. There was also, in terms of uh, uh, Western recyclers, there was that uh, a major impact a few years ago when China uh, implemented its national sword policy. Uh, that was about five, uh, 2018, which banned various forms of uh, solid waste that Western economies had been just shipping, shipping over to China. And India and other Central Asian and Southeast Asian countries have followed suit as well. So we in the West are now left with with a real problem, one that we've been effectively exporting. It's it's quite strange, really, when you when you look at the waste industry, the, the, given the fact that uh, on the whole there are a lot of outdated 
uh, outdated ways of dealing with waste, not least of all digging a hole and just dumping it in there. But we're, we've reached the point now because of regulation and the fact that in the UK, we're actually running out of um, viable landfill sites that we're going to have to treat waste in, in different ways. And one of the underlying themes is that, is that people are coming to realize uh, the, the value of waste or the potential value of waste. To just give you uh, one example there, of course, we've seen uh, an increase in um, in the, the digitalized economy, uh, and plus we have a mandated we have a mandated switch over to electric and hybrid motoring, but with that comes a lot of specialist waste uh, problems because of the heavy metals involved and highly toxic, and uh, we just don't have capacity to deal with that at the moment. Nor does it seem the the political will. At just prior to the pandemic, again as well. Electric vehicles made up about 1% of the global stock and about 2.5% of new sales, regardless of which way you look at it. If this is a mandated change through to 2035, it isn't just a case that manufacturers will be looking at ways of securing raw material sources, but it's also what happens, what happens with that waste once it's been used in batteries. This is where obviously recycling comes in. And the large recyclers could actually find themselves in another position whereby they become part of the supply chain. They already are to a certain degree, uh, but it becomes a new and increasingly viable uh, income stream for them too. Well, one of the things as well that you um, you focus on is is a, is a, a method that again might might seem somewhat old fashioned, but to which you know people might be coming round, which is incineration and and um, new advancements there. And 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 one thing you also mentioned that you draw the comparison, I think, with the the EU's recent move on uh, national gas, natural gas rather, to say actually you know we will effectively accept this as a de facto agreed energy source because it's an important part of the transition and something similar could potentially happen with with incineration uh, processes well, well i think there's there's signs that it already is happening obviously in terms of natural gas and in, and in fact nuclear as well they're going to be reclassified as renewable sources of energy which obviously uh, uh, ruffled some feathers in relation to this but it's just that there seems to be no viable alternative for energy generation in europe uh, because uh, the intermittent nature of uh, wind and solar and the fact that it's just difficult to when it, whenever you build evidence suggests that whenever you build renewable capacity into a grid there's a commensurate increase in natural gas imports to to cover to cover the, the periods uh, when the sun is shining and the wind ain't blowing you know so with with energy from waste technologies, and, and it isn't just um, a monolith, there are various technologies linked to this. It gets opposition and has got in opposition in the past because of pollution issues, particularly really relating to uh, uh, the release of dioxins, which are extremely injurious to, to human health. Proponents of the schemes now say that the technology has moved, moved on and it's, uh, it's actually widely widely in use in uh, Germany and also the, the, the Benelux countries as well as the technology has, has moved forward. Um, so to give you some idea, uh, the, the technology accounted for about 2.5% uh, of UK 
power generation in 20, 2020, but it's predicted that's going to hit seven to eight percent by 2030, which uh, that's uh, that's quite significant, really. And you, you know, you look at the um, in, incineration of solid waste in the Euro- European Union; it uh, more than doubled between 1995 and 2017. And I just think that, you know, we've got these increased volumes. We we don't know what to do with landfill is is not a environmentally friendly option, of course. I mean, there's there's um, sort of negative implications for the water table. So I, I really do think it's the case that no matter how good the, the regulatory framework is, how well intentioned, it just tends to sort of grind up against these these meat hook, hook realities. And I think that presents, uh, it's going to present uh, a real opportunity for large waste management companies. Because I think that um, that it's an industry as well, that that scale really matters. Uh, and I, I highlighted three companies within, within the article, but uh, there, are, there are many others at play. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, we have uh, plenty of details on uh, uh, those companies and various others from around the world in the cover story this week. Uh, Viola is is quite interesting to residents of South London, such as myself, because during the pandemic, they're mainly known for the uh, uh, big reaction to the um, lack of daily, weekly bin collections, which, as we as we know, is a big perennial issue in uh, in local politics wherever you are. But uh, you know, maybe not uh, operating so well on the ground in South London, but globally and as an investment opportunity, is a different uh, state of affairs. I think we did point out as well that there, you know, you know, beyond waste management itself and power generation and overlaps with other sectors, you know, packaging being the the obvious one, but that's another story. We should get on to the the big news of the week, markets wise, um, in terms of the volatility that is, you know, what we've seen what we've seen happening over the past few days. Coincidentally, I was just looking at the uh, the iShares Global Minimum Volatility ETF today, as you do, and uh, the top holding there was uh, the U.S. company Waste Management incorporated so you know maybe there's another uh, opportunity there in these uh, these difficult times but yeah but that obviously you know waste management is a uh, very far removed from the uh, uh, the action end of the market this week once again we've seen you know some really sharp falls for for tech for speculative tech in particular and um, we'll come on to, to some of that in a moment but we'll start perhaps from a funds angle as John mentioned earlier we have funds editor Dave Baxter with us this week Dave, you've uh, done a couple of pieces uh, recently that have some relevance here. One uh, from last week, a couple of weeks ago, talking about the lockdown winners, you know, the funds that did particularly well during the pandemic and how, and your analysis kind of looked at actually how, you know, those returns are still holding up relatively well now. Obviously, we've had another week of steep falls for some of these uh, funds in question, but uh, maybe you'd just like to talk us through a little bit of, you know, those, those findings, that, those results. Yeah, sure. So, um if we cast our minds briefly back to the earlier pandemic, we think of 2020, there was much of that discussion of lockdown winners, whether it's kind of tech or other trends, things like food delivery, all sorts of different things. And there were certain um, investment trusts in particular that really captured some or many of these trends. Um, so you had um, various kind of Bailey Gifford trusts like Scottish Mortgage, Edinburgh Worldwide, um, Pacific Horizon in Asia, and then some other names like the Alliance Technology Trust, um, some of the China names, some biotech funds, that kind of thing. And they all posted really stellar returns. Um, 
Now, of course, if we fast forward to the, the current moment, um, as you mentioned, things have been really volatile in markets um, this week, but also in recent months. And um, they've, they've all kind of struggled really um, extremely. Um, I imagine if you're a shareholder in something like Scottish Mortgage, you may feel like the kind of world is falling apart. Um, Scottish Mortgage actually slips this week from its position of the, as the uh, largest um, investment trust in the UK. Um, but yeah, as you, as you mentioned, what's interesting is um, it, this is very kind of hindsight blessed timing, but if you were to have um, invested a lump sum into any of these trusts um, at the start of 2020, um, if you look at them now, the vast majority, there are a couple of exceptions, but the vast majority are still sitting um, on gains. Uh, so names like, for example, Pacific Horizon is still on um, some pretty substantial gains. And most of them are still in the black. Um, I, I just think that's perhaps interesting from a maybe a psychological point of view as an investor. You know, you're like I said, it may feel currently like the world is falling apart for some of those more growthy and tech focused funds. But actually, um, you're you're still kind of sitting on some whims and maybe that influences your decision. You know, maybe it kind of um, reasserts your confidence in these holdings or equally maybe people will be tempted to sort of get out while I can if they still think things are you know, going to look pretty, uh, pretty bad for, for the coming months or even longer. Yeah, I think I think that is, uh, is a good point. I mean, um, you relate to the Nasdaq as well, you, you, know, you can do quite easily down another 10%, you know, just in the five days since we uh, five working days since we lasted the, uh, the podcast, um, down about, you know, 30% this year, but really, that's only back to, you know, early or late 2020 levels. So there is, you know, there have been several years of gains, of course, prior to that as well. So it is important to keep these things in context. Uh, speaking of which, another the piece you've done this week has been looking at fund pairings. You know, obviously we've seen rotation from growth to value over the past few months. Growth is still selling off really sharply, um, as we say, particularly in the most speculative areas of the market. Uh, and you've been looking at you know combining funds in, in a portfolio to produce perhaps something a bit more balanced in terms of returns. Uh, can you talk a bit about what, what you what you discovered there? Yeah, so it's a bit of a, bit of a thought experiment there. So um, with the, you know, renewed rotations, perhaps there's more of an emphasis on the idea of kind of um, pairing different investment styles um, and whether you can kind of beat the, the market by doing so. Um, so to, to go through it briefly, I, I looked at... Um, four distinct time periods where um, value has either performed well or has at least held up better than growth. So I looked at the second half of 2016. Um, I looked at the sell-off in the final quarter of 2018. Um, I looked at the sort of six months that began with so-called Vaccine Monday in November 2020. And then I've looked at the most recent kind of six months or so. Um, and I, I just examined um, kind of globally in the UK and also in Europe, what would happen if you took sort of a, a stalwart growth fund and combined it with more of a kind of deep value fund in a 50-50 split in the portfolio. So uh, on, on the global front, I looked at um, the flagship Fundsmith fund and paired that with um, Schroeder's global recovery fund, which is pretty kind of deep value play, looked at some really decent up stocks. 
And I suppose what's encouraging there is if you compare the performance of a, a portfolio split across those two funds versus something like the MSCI World Index, um, then actually over the first three time periods I've mentioned, it, that combination, that active combination does hold up better. Um, so you are, particularly times when markets are rising, but it's being led by the kind of value ends, like for example, the 2016 period, then the, the value funds will really kind of shoot the lights out and um, lead things when the, when the growth name is kind of uh, struggling a bit more. Um, and we kind of saw similar results in the UK and um, in Europe, for example, in the UK, we looked at pairing up line trust special situations with the Schroeder Recovery Fund. Um, I suppose one interesting and perhaps not very reassuring finding is, uh, like I said, when markets are still rising, that things are getting a bit more cyclical, then these pairs work well. But the results are a bit less convincing when you look at times like the back end of 2018 or the last six months when, uh, you know, value is holding up better, in some cases doing well, but still everything's struggling. So, you know, if we do... If we do see more investor panic, and I do wonder perhaps if we do see something like a recession, then um, perhaps simply pairing up value and growth isn't really gonna kind of cut it. You're still gonna take some pain. And so that's worth bearing in mind. I think we've kind of seen, you know, even in the past week, this rotation has been going on for a while, but in the past week, some of the comments we've seen from, um, you know, venture capitalists, if you will, from the tech investors in the US, uh, even the CEO of Uber, you know, uh, very much saying cash flows are king now. It's not about revenues, which is completely, you know, the opposite of these several years we've had of of stocks being analysed and, and uh, um, pumped up based on multiples of revenues. Um, you know, it seems there's been a bit of a eye opening uh, going on across the sector. I mean, Uber CEO even said this week, I think we have to make sure our unit economics work before we go big, which really is. The complete opposite to how companies like Uber get started, you know, how you get a, get a foothold and just try and grow and grow until you finally reach profitability. So it does seem there is a real shift in thinking whether that lasts for as long as the market keeps falling or whether it continues remains to be seen. Um, I suppose, Mark, from your point of view, you know, um, we, we, we look at these kind of big falls. We see people talking about cash flow as being king. That is kind of to a lot of investors, that will be what they've always kind of thought, you know, part and parcel of doing your investment analysis. You know, that, that's a, uh, a mentality to which a lot of our readers subscribe, I think. Yeah, I, I think uh, what's happened over the last week uh, just underlines the, the value of line-to-line -line investing, point-to-point -point investing, because, you know, it, it can be shown that uh, value companies do well uh, over time, regardless of volatility in the market. And it's one of the, I think it's just one of the, the fundamental aspects of investing as well. The, tr the trouble is now is that a lot of people will be um, are casting around to find, try and find uh, a safe haven in, in the market, buying into uh, commodity-based stocks, and, and all that's fine. But if you've got um, if you've got a well-insulated uh, portfolio to begin with, the, these these periods of volatility are, uh, uh, are virtually sort of meaningless, really, if you take that that long-term view. Yeah, I think that's that's the key thing, isn't it? I mean, um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of a lot of commentary does get wrapped up in, in the short term, and, and you've got to, as per the uh, the lockdown winners discussion, you know, you've got to look back at, at the you know the long term performance. Um, yeah, it's always. I mean, we have been here before. I mean, you know, twenty years ago with the the dot com crash, it was exactly the same 
scenario. And I think that the, the, the red flag for any investor is always when someone comes up and says, well, this is a new paradigm. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. always, that for me, that's always a, a, um, a warning sign. Uh, or, or they say, oh, you know, profits don't matter or you know, any of and they kind of get trotted out every 20 years because there's a new generation of investors and fund managers who, who will listen to the same story. But I mean, if you remember it the first well, time we, around. Well, the, this time, possibly the worst, uh, the most grotesque manifest, manifestation of it was a modern monetary, uh, pol you know, uh, policy. The the fact that you can keep on sort of running deficit uh, uh, deficit economies indefinitely, and um, it was only a matter of time really before uh, liquidity started to be withdrawn from the market. I mean, the, the obviously what we've been going through since two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight is unprecedented unprecedented in terms of uh, government intervention in the economy but um and, and in many in, and in many senses we've just been kicking the can down the road yeah i suppose the the economic fallout is the the next big question you know we've been dealing with high prices we have seen even u.s banks coming off the boil you know quite a lot in the past few weeks which does suggest you know the recessionary concerns are starting to override the um rising rate concerns you know i know they combine together but but yeah as you say maybe maybe some of that those chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the US is quite interesting because the banks that track the state of the underlying economy quite closely, even, be, I mean, the reason for, the reason that's interesting in investment terms is because unlike the UK, they don't form a nearly as big a proportion of the overall US economy, but are still sort of vital to it. So it, it's a much more reliable tracker of um, activity. So, I mean, that's definitely a point to make. Yeah. I guess, as you say, it's it's always now more than ever a question of you know paying attention to the line by line analysis and looking to the long term and you know trying to ride this out as best uh, as best one can. Uh, that brings us to the end of uh, this week's show. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to Mark and Julian and Dave for taking part, uh, and thank you for listening. We'll be back again next week, hopefully with a, a little bit more of a. Um, relaxed week on the on the markets and certainly with a lot more company analysis as well so we'll see you then goodbye companies and market show was edited and produced by me john rogers and don't forget if you've liked what you've heard please do head on over to itunes drop us a rating and a review we'd love to get your feedback ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>